Welcome to The Author Reads. Hello and welcome to episode four of The Author Reads. And hi and welcome to our listeners in Norway. We have listeners in Norway? Well, we have one listener in Norway. But tall firs from little fir cones grow, as they probably say in Scandinavia. Uh, and they probably don't, Steve, but on with the show, huh? We've a compelling tale from Brindley Hallam Dennis later called If You Go Down to the Woods. And Steve continues his serialization of The Eggs of Saramova. But first, Lynn, with another wry look at life through the eyes of a new independent author. This story is entitled The New Author Following by Lynn Osbald Aston. She knew she hadn't lost it. It was in here somewhere, the library card. She had to find it. The librarian might refuse to take her books without the card and Mum would not be happy. More money wasted. No more fines, Mum said. Pay your own if you get fined, Mum said. Fine, Tory said. The library books were due to be returned today and Tori was looking forward to seeing the seemingly endless rows of shelves. High, freestanding structures in the middle of the large room where you could lose yourself for a while. The end of each row facing onto the thick shelves that reached floor to ceiling. The books on the higher shelves only accessible by a ladder that glided silently across each section and of course the librarian's help. The adult section of her local library was a wonderful place to go. Tori had outgrown the children's section of the library. Her days of devouring Enid Blyton books had slipped into the distant past, as had many other authors who wrote for children and younger teens. Now she was looking for writers who would entertain, thrill and captivate her 17-year-old imagination. She had been recommended to have a look at a relatively new local author who was gaining quite a following. Adventure, intrigue, a bit scary, but definitely one to read, she had been told, and Tori hoped that the debut novel was available. She wasn't really one for hearts and flowers and the romance of boy meets girl or white knights to the rescue and all that soppy stuff all the time. Mum had said try a cookson. Lovely story, true to life, usually a twist, and not too saucy. Tori had read one by Cookson and had enjoyed it, but wanted something different. The sort that you couldn't tear yourself away from, didn't want it to end, and stayed with you for weeks after giving your imagination a good workout and left you feeling at one with the author. Hopefully... The following, by Behind Me, was available and she could make her own judgment. Recommendations were really helpful and Tori was keen to get a copy and find out for herself if this could be the start of a new author to follow. It was shortly after tea that Tori collected her books due to be returned and headed out of the house. She'd found the card. The library was open late on Thursday evenings, and tonight that was a godsend. If she missed the library tonight, she'd have to pay a fine for a late return, and like most teenagers, she was always broke. 
Seven o'clock was closing time and she liked to be there with at least half an hour of uninterrupted browsing if she didn't know what she wanted. This was usually enough time to find something. Tonight there was no panic as there was no need to browse. She would ask the librarian if it was available, grab and go if it was, or order it for next week if it wasn't. No fine either. That was fine too. As long as she was inside 15 minutes before 7pm she would be allowed entry, sorted one way or another and have time to get home before it was dark. Tori wasn't a fan of walking in the dark. She reread the blurb on the back of the book as she stood in the porch, hoping that the rain would ease quickly. Well, before she was asked to move so the librarian could lock the front door. Five minutes until she would have to get wet and no doubt be soaked to the skin by the time she got home if the weather didn't change. It was getting dark early too and Tori felt a tingle run up her spine. Was it the thought of having to steal herself for a walk in the fading light or the anticipation of beginning the book? If the blurb was anything to go by, this book was going to be amazing. Her eyes widened as she read again, whispering the words, her imagination firing up, a scene she could visualise. Jimmy Jones was minutes from his house. He had been aware of someone behind him for a while now. It unsettled him. He could see the house up ahead and instinctively quickened his pace. As he, felt that gr as he felt the hand grab his arm, he screamed. Was Jimmy Jones the next to be captured and disappear completely? Would he be able to break free and outrun who was ever causing fear and panic in this quiet suburb of... She jumped as she heard a whispering voice. It was the librarian. Tori wanted to laugh. She thought librarians only spoke quietly inside the building. Maybe that's why this lady was a librarian. Tori struggled to stay quiet for longer than 15 minutes and Mum was always telling her to quiet and down. Tori took off her jacket and wrapped it around the novel. Better for her to get wet. Books didn't hold up too well against water and the librarian would have something to say if she took the following back in a poor state. Anyway, the librarian had insisted that she kept the book dry as she locked the main door and nodded approvingly as the jacket securely cocooned the novel. As Tori looked at the ever-darkening sky, she asked the librarian if she could walk with her. They both lived on the same road and that meant Tori would be able to run home once they went their separate ways. They said goodbye at the librarian's house and Tori once again assured the woman she would be fine. No need to walk her home, the girl said. It's not properly dark and I'll be home in no time. Tori had been glad of the company, but the conversation had been difficult. There were only so many times you could ask someone to repeat themselves before it became embarrassing. Tori ran until she was out of breath. She had developed a stitch in her side and was forced to slow down. She walked slowly, focusing on her shadow that grew, then disappeared as she passed the orange glow of every streetlight. Counting steps to take her mind off the stabbing in her waist and to see if she could reach each lamppost taking the same number of steps. Her thoughts turned to the blurb on the back of the book, slightly scaring her and heightening her senses. It was dark now. Focus on the shadow, she repeated with every step. 
The shadow, elongated, then shrinking, suddenly changed. Her shadow had split into two. She heard footsteps, and with a strength that she didn't know her legs possessed, she began to run. The footsteps thundered behind her, growing closer. She felt something touch her arm. Tori jumped over the garden wall and lunged at the front door. She fell into the hallway, crying with relief as the door opened. Mum, help, following, behind, me, she wailed. Each word separately gasped as she fought for breath. Mum walked down the path. The person was still there. Tori, come here, love, her mum said. She was laughing, and so was the person. That's right, said a quiet voice. It was the librarian standing at the gate. I'm behind me, and the author of following. You dropped your library card when you took your key out of your jacket pocket by my gate. I tried to shout, but... Tory grinned, embarrassed yet delighted to have met a real-life author. She said, it's okay, I'm glad you did. Don't want another fine, and by the time I've finished your book and told everyone... Well, there'll definitely be a cue for your book and your autograph following behind me. And now over to Steve for the fourth instalment of his novella, The Eggs of Saramova, in which Karen starts to come to terms with her situation and shows that she will be no pushover. Having gained a chilling insight into the reason behind her abduction from Earth, Karen is now determined to confront Morrick and demand her immediate return. The Eggs of Saramova, Episode 4, Kuraron They were approaching the daytime side of the planet, and Karen watched the dawn come up over a magnificent mauve blue ocean. The sun rose higher in the sky, and majestic sun-bleached mountains swept down to the sea, their foundations paddling in the waves. As the craft descended towards the mountains, a golden city of domed pentagons peered from behind a rocky outcrop, stretching its golden fingers to the very edge of a precipice hundreds of metres above the sea, as if in defiance of its precarious position. As the craft came level with the city, Karen could clearly see the walls, which maintained the illusion of being made from solid gold. Sentries stood at intervals, their manes resplendent in the Kuraronian morning sun, like waterfalls cascading down the front of their emerald green uniforms. They wore mitre-shaped helmets with little dark points, which made them look like upturned blister beetles. This accentuated their height, which as close as she could judge was between six and seven feet. Karen began to feel a new surge of uneasiness as the craft decelerated on its approach to an enormous cavern in the cliff face and the city walls were lost to view. They gradually swung round into position and the engine note dropped. She could see along the edge of the cliffs now and out across the sea. The craft edged towards the cavern and as they entered this shadowy world, Karen felt the closeness of the rocks. A claustrophobic panic seized her and the fear of the unknown rushed up from the pit of her stomach. She began to perspire profusely, her body tensed like a coiled spring, and she felt a trickle of warm urine running down the inside of her thigh. The trickle became a torrent, and huge heaving sobs racked her body. There was a sudden jolt as the engine noise ceased, 
and Karen felt that she had put on about 20 pounds in weight. Her legs buckled under her and she fell to her knees. The jolt had the effect of shaking her out of her stupor. She undid the bottom fastening of the shift and brought the corner of the hem up to wipe her eyes. Right, Karen Smallwood, she told herself. You are in a hostage situation and nobody's going to help you out of it except you. Crying like a baby isn't going to help any. She got to her feet, crossed to the bed and wiped her leg on it, wrinkling her nose up in disgust. She tried to fasten the clasp on the shift but couldn't figure the mechanism. She left it. She steeled herself as the door started to glow again. Once more it faded and Morrick entered, flanked by two guards in emerald uniforms. She drew herself up to her full height and faced him squarely. I wish to see someone in authority, she told him matter-of-factly with a bravery she didn't feel. I have absolutely no intention of cooperating with you and I insist that you return me to Earth immediately. Do I make myself clear? Please come with me. Morrick made no indication that he'd even heard her, let alone understood. The two guards stood to one side and Karen, fuming, followed Morrick out into a long, curving passage. The guards fell in behind her. Did you hear me? I said... But Karen never finished the sentence. One of the guards brought his bullwhip swiftly up to the side of her neck, leaving her in no doubt that any further outbursts would not be tolerated. She followed meekly until they reached some sort of exit hatchway. Morrick stood back and let the other guard proceed him onto a gantry. The guard with the bullwhip at her neck indicated for her to follow. Outside of the spacecraft, the heat in the cavern was stifling, and the awe-inspiring size of it left Karen breathless. The ship itself towered some 20 metres above them, and they were 30 metres from the floor of the cavern. Below was a hive of activity, and she could see Salmoven guards and many more smaller beings without mains going about their business. Karen decided that it would be in her best interest to try to find out a few things about her new circumstances. She caught up with Morrick, trying to ignore the vertiginous drop to her left. The single railing at breast height seemed scant protection against a terminal fall. Who are those people down there? she asked softly, amiably even. The small ones in the blue uniforms. Those are our hosts, the Cororonians, he replied without turning to her. We are merely guests on this world until we can find a home of our own. They look as if they're working for you, she observed. It is all part of the agreement, Karen could hear the capital letters. In simple terms, we have provided them with the technology to best utilise their natural resources, and they have allowed us to build our city and stay for an indefinite length of time until we can move onwards. They also provide us with labour, food and so forth, he added, almost as an afterthought. Karen nodded studiously. They came to the end of the gantry where a small six-seater vehicle was waiting the first guard already in place at the controls. Morrick stepped down into it and helped Karen to do likewise. If this um, agreement is so friendly, then why do you need so many guards? Morrick's face became stony. 
We have to be vigilant to the possibility of infiltration by the camera. The driver made a sound between a grunt and a low growl. Camera? Karen probed, but Morak would be drawn no more on the subject. The vehicle glided forwards and Karen's heart missed a beat as it came off the end of its platform. They flew in an arc around the cavern and dropped to about 15 metres above the floor. Karen could clearly see the rugged faces and the squat, muscle-bound bodies of the Kuroronian workers in their blue work-soiled uniforms. The huge spacecraft was silhouetted against the cavern opening and she could see two smaller craft, about the size of jumbo jets, being loaded on the far side. So, she asked, who is the head honcho around these parts? His name is Sultan, Morat replied briefly. They were approaching a tunnel bored neatly into the craggy cavern wall, and as they entered, Karen was surprised to find that they were travelling quite fast. Their speed had seemed relatively slow in the enormity of the vast chamber. Am I being taken to see Sultan now? She had to raise her voice considerably over the roar in the tunnel. No, Morak shouted back. I doubt whether you will see Sultan at all. But I asked to see the person in charge, Karen objected. I want to go home. Morak appeared to ignore this and leant forward to give the guard come driver instructions. The vehicle slowed to a halt and then slipped sideways into a recess in the wall. They began to rise and Karen looked up to see a shaft narrowing to nothingness above her. The roar of the tunnel now abated. Morak turned to her and said slowly and deliberately, You are being taken to good quarters. You will find them quite comfortable. I have overseen their design and construction myself. You are my responsibility. And as far as you are concerned, I am in charge. Then when are you taking me back to Earth? Karen asked bluntly. The vehicle came to the end of its ascent and glided sideways into a corridor. Morak said something to the driver in a strange, guttural language, and the driver grunted something in reply. The vehicle moved forward again, but at a much slower speed. Well, Karen snapped more than a little unsettled now. The strangeness of the language reminding her of how very far from home she was. You are being taken to your quarters, Morak reaffirmed, where I shall leave you to rest. More food will be brought, which I implore you to eat, and then later we shall talk. Presently they came to a halt and a section of wall disappeared to reveal a bright room. Morrick climbed out and offered his hand to Karen. She instinctively held back like an animal about to be caged. Come on, Morrick coaxed. You'll be comfortable here. There's nothing to fear. The floor of the room was neither hot nor cold, soft nor hard to her bare feet. The pervading colour of the walls was white, as was the floor and ceiling. Streaks of gold and grey ran through at occasional intervals. In the centre of the room sat a slab of what looked like marble, which she presumed to be a table. Two large cushions of the same material as the bed on the spacecraft were scattered either side, Japanese style. A vase of beautiful flowers, like scarlet orchids with green and yellow stamens, had been placed centre table. They filled the room with a pleasant, if somewhat sickly, smell. 
I'll be back later, Mark reaffirmed from his position in the doorway. She watched him turn, still smiling reassuringly, and get into the driver's seat of the vehicle. As the doorway became opaque once more, she saw the two guards, bullwhips in hand, stationed either side of the corridor. And now we go down to the woods with Windley Hallam Dennis as he reads from his short story collection, Previously. Hello, I'm Brindley Hallam Dennis. I live on the edge of England, within sight of a sliver of Solway Firth and three mountain tops. I'm going to read you a short story taken from the collection called Previously, 100 Earlier Tales of Brindley Hallam Dennis. The story's called If You Go Down. His teeth were unclean, his eyes the colour of polished haematite, red patches showed through the stubble on his cheeks. He wore his hair pulled tight back in a ponytail and had on an old green and brown camo patterned smock. His gun carried two curved magazines taped together for quick reloading. We're all psychos end up doing this job, he said. The trees were barely above head height, but they were a lattice of side branches and in full leaf. It wasn't the leathery grey foliage of old, stunted trees, like the ones you find sheltering in gullies on Hebridean islands. The leaves on these trees had the pale, light green of youthfulness, the flush of new growth that signals renewal and rehabilitation. He glanced at the permit. I put it back in my pocket. I said, people like to know what's going on out here these days. He let the grin widen. I could see the gaps between his teeth. Then he turned away and pushed through the undergrowth, letting the branches spring back towards me, carrying the heavy weapon over his shoulder, the dangerous end swinging from side to side across my eye line. I ducked down and pushed through after him. We were on a path, not so broad as the tracks that horses one day will make dragging out timber. This was a path trod by lighter feet, something or someone that pushed through without breaking off the branches. I could see faint marks on the ground, not where nothing grew, but where what did grow was pressed down, matted. It was soft underfoot. Pads of last year's rotting leaves were killing the grass. The tips of new shoots, pale, almost yellow, showed through. He stopped abruptly and I looked up to see the gun barrel swing towards my face. Wait, he said quietly. He lifted the weapon from his shoulder. Quiet. The skills of the hunter are arcane. The skill of passing noiselessly over the woodland floor, instinctively avoiding the stick that will break and reveal your presence. The acute hearing, the heightened sense of smell, the ability to read the forest, to know why when the birds have fallen silent, to distinguish the smell of fox from feral dog. That almost unconscious monitoring of everything around, which side of the trunk the lichen clings to, what the drops of dew on the branches tell us, 
of the weather that is coming. Whether the air is drying or moistening, that almost magical sense of the prey, of how near or far off it is, of whether it is moving towards us or away, or whether it is in fear of us or not. The woodsman's quiet confidence in himself, in the message of his senses, and how he interprets them. This was what I had come to witness, what I would tell of. Can they smell us? I whispered over his shoulder. He turned his head slowly and I caught the whiff of bad breath and garlic. Only if we shit ourselves, he said. The grin returned. The bad bed teeth gleamed. The, tri the trees are quiet when there's no wind. We passed between upright stones a couple of metres apart, low green mounds stretching away into the undergrowth on each side. The tumbled stones, softened and green by moss, looked like mouldy loaves. Old field boundary, I said, to let him know I'd done my homework. He glanced back and smiled. Then he squinted as if into a light and leaned closer. Hear that? He said. I listened like something hard rolling across an uneven wooden floor not far away. He must have read my face, for he nodded. Out in the open, he said, about a hundred yards off. I frowned. Ground under the trees would be too soft to hear them. I nodded. They're frisky, he said. He brought the gun down to chest height, was slowly easing back some catch. Automatic fire, he said. The rumbling faded. They're going away, I hissed. He turned from me. Perhaps. He left the word hanging above his shoulder. He pushed grubby earplugs into his ears. No more talking, he said. Just follow. By the time we reached the clearing, we were crouched low as if we were doing some slow-mo Cossack dance. There were five of them. The bull was massive with short, slightly curved horns, the tips of which just caught the light. The females were ungainly, nervous. They stood in a ragged line at the far side of the clearing. I wondered if they attacked, how quickly they could cover the ground between us. He was raising the gun slowly. The bull saw us. Its whole body changed instantly. Its head jerked. It turned, slipped silently between the trees. The clattering gun shattered our silence. The cows recoiled, reared, bellowed, fell aside. One smashed its way into the trees after the bull. One dropped like a stone. The sound of the gun echoed, staccato. The third stumbled to its knees, struggling to rise again. The fourth rolled onto its side. Bastard, he said. Then he was up and running towards the foundered beasts, the heavy gun in one hand drawing from the pocket of his smock with the other a smaller hand weapon. I stumbled after him, swiftly, almost without looking. He headshot the two that were still alive and took the small gun back into his pocket. My ears were ringing from the gunshots. Then he stood, looking across the corpses into the trees. I was shaking. He fingered out the plugs from his ears and stuffed them into a shoulder pocket. I stammered, why didn't you go for the bull? Bulls make no difference, he said, without turning. 
The number of females on the loose is what keeps up the population. He grinned again. The bulls are wise to us, he said. He laughed. Good old boys. He looked around, shouldered the big weapon. Come on, he said. He led me back into the fringe of trees and stopped. Wait, he said. Look. Two women wearing green hunter boots beneath tweed skirts and wax jackets came out through the curtain of trees at the far side of the clearing. They were carrying machetes. Meat eaters, he said. And then he added, there's your story. This story is included in the paperback previously. 100 Earlier Stories of Brindley Hallam Dennis, which you can buy online. That's all for this week. Thank you all for your feedback and see you next week. Yes, we really do like to hear from you. So it's goodbye from Lynn, myself and this week's guest author, Brindley Hallam Dennis. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.